James Andrew Miller, a.k.a. Jim, isn't just an award-winning journalist, New York Times bestseller, podcast extraordinaire of the in-depth and entertaining show Origins. He's also just a good person. Jim is the co-author of the New York Times bestselling book Powerhouse, the untold story of Hollywood's creative artists agency. For the book, he interviewed more than 500 people. Jim isn't messing around. The New York Times said, Even more impressive is Miller's ability to get nearly everyone involved not only to talk, but also to go on the record, which is remarkable, given the notorious culture of secrecy in Hollywood. He also co-wrote Those Guys Have All the Fun, Inside the World of ESPN, a 770-page oral history of the cable network, and once again, New York Times bestseller. Jim also co-wrote Live from New York, an uncensored history of Saturday Night Live. The New York Times said it was a whopping, comprehensive oral history of Saturday Night Live, another book of Jim's, this time for five months, on the New York Times bestsellers list. I've had my own book, and I can say that actually mine was not on the New York Times bestsellers list. Okay, Jim goes all in, I I really think that, and then some, and and then some more. Uh, Honestly, if I were to go through his bio, it would be the entire podcast. During the interview, I learned what he thinks of going off the record, which is really interesting. The similarities between his books, uh, he's definitely a fan of the underdog. And we talk about podcasting and how it's different from more traditional formats. And I'm also reminded that Jim is pretty, pretty funny. He talks about getting to know everyone from Sarah Jessica Parker to Larry David. I also went boxing with him last week and he kicked my... Enjoy the show. Jenks working his way down the food chain. (laughs) That's a great way to start this. That was brilliant. All right, great. All right, Jim. So you have one of my favorite podcasts. What has been the transition to podcasting like? Uh, Truth be told, I actually, I love it because as much as I love interviewing people for articles that I write and for books that I write, there is another dimension to podcasts, which I think it makes it more intimate and even at times more revealing. I think that there is those delicious pauses or those moments when somebody's trying to find their way to an answer or when you can tell by the beginning of their response that they're maybe haven't thought about it before. And so you can hear them organically try and come up with an answer. Those things don't really get to be represented in articles because or books because you don't have that kind of space and it's not that kind of vehicle. You know, so I'm kind of usually editing around those things and they wind up being, you know, as far as I'm concerned, delicious little morsels. Yeah, that's true. It's almost particularly for your oral history books. It's, it's as if podcasting that really comes to light in terms of the, the pauses, what you said about pausing, that kind of struck me. Like you, you don't, you really feel that in a podcast, don't you? That's interesting. I'm pausing before I answer. No, um, yes, you, you do. You do feel it, and I think that one of the things with Origins was to go deeper than the books can, and so not necessarily in terms of content, because God knows they're pretty deep dives, almost to a fault. How long is the SNL book? Uh, I'm to uh, six hundred and something pages. Uh-huh. It was. I think that's the shortest of them. <laughs> but I think that, uh, you know, that was one of the 
initial aspirations of Origins was to to try and incorporate another sense, in this case, audio, to uh, you know, to 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 my, to my reporting and storytelling. So um, it's been it's been great, and I also feel like there's a there's a different kind of urgency. When I went down to Tuscaloosa and met with Saban, with Coach Nick Saban in his office, and the fact that it was recording, I remember very distinctly that you know he was looking down at the microphone, thinking this is the end result, not that I was oh. going to go away, record things, transcribe it, edit a couple quotes for you know a book or an article. It's it's in some ways much more raw, right. and I. I love that level of transparency as well. Right. How do you go about approaching your interviews? I, I think of you had the the chapter on sex in the city, and then you had one on curb your enthusiasm. What are the approaches that you take, particularly with the both of the Sarah Jessica Parker and Larry David are in the entertainment business, but they're I would assume very different people. What's kind of the strategy you have going into? those sorts of interviews, particularly with people who are in the entertainment business and they kind of have done plenty of interviews? Well, I tend to beg a lot. To get the interview in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. Or I mean, look, mean? In, in both of those cases, uh, I had the good fortune to have interviewed both of them in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes when there's a level of comfort and there's also a kind of proof of performance, right. you know, that you're not going to make mistakes, that you're not going to take things out of context, that you don't have an agenda that's somewhat contrary to, to theirs, you know, um, I think that that can help. Um, it certainly helped, I, I feel like, in both cases. And particularly given the fact that, well, I mean, I had interviewed Sarah Jessica for the SNL book and for the CA book, and Larry for the SNL book and a couple other times. So, I think that that helps. But I think also in terms of approaching people who I may not have interviewed before, um, try and have either the books or articles, other writing speak for themselves. Uh, or, you know, it's, it's a very small, it, it's an interesting time in journalism, right? Because it's a, it's a very big world and yet at the same time, it's a very small world. And so you just you know that these powerhouse PR firms or these managers or these agents or whatever, they, they are protective of their clients and they're going to have their own discussions about whether or not this is something that they want their client doing. Who's been someone out of any, anyone that you've interviewed uh, that saw what came out, doesn't have to be podcasting, an article, book, whatever, that was the subject of of uh, the project or, or article that you were writing on, and was really upset at you personally for for how it came out. Hmm. Look, I, I'm not. You don't do these things to win a popularity contest, and I think that sometimes people they may not like the fact that you, that something was reported as wide and as deep as it was because they thought that maybe their own words were going to be the words of record. And when you, I think it's incumbent just in terms of reporting, particularly when you're tracing the pedigree of a, of a company or a show that you need to understand that there were 
different people in the room and there are different vantage points and maybe different interpretations. And so I try and even if you wind up in the proverbial Rashomon situation, I try and make sure that there's enough input just in terms of like literally just journalism 101, enough reporting that's done so you don't take any person's, any single person's word for it. And I think that there have been times when people have said, well, I didn't know you were talking to, you know, Mo or Larry or Shemp or something. And, uh, you know, if I had known that, I, you know, I would have told you something differently or I would have told you that they can't be trusted or whatever because everyone has their own perspective on on what happened. And I think that's part of the broth. That it, that's one of the reasons why I love oral history because mm. that does become like a really live element in the work. Mm. Um, people remember things sometimes differently and why they remember them differently is, I think, a powerful psychological port of entry as well. And what about someone that has looked back on what the end product was and was upset? Well, I think, I think Michael Ovitz, look, I was really fortunate and happy that Michael elected to participate and let me interview him. And by the way, he didn't just let me interview him. I, I had over 60 separate conversations with him, many at his house, many hours, you know, many, many hours. And I will say that. And sorry, Jim, I hate to interrupt, but really quick, could you just provide a little bit of context for those people who don't know? Sure. Michael Ovitz was one of the five original founders of the Creative Artist Agency and wound up being um, quoted as the most powerful man in Hollywood. Uh, his rise from 1979 to 1995 was almost unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, and so he's somebody who doesn't cooperate a lot with articles or in fact, books, I don't, I'm not sure he cooperated with any. Uh, but I will say that even though he was dismayed or disappointed at some of the things that other people said about him, um, or that I elected to include some things, he was still um, incredibly gracious and got together uh, with me at the Directors Guild for an event with Ron Meyer, and the two of them had not been seen in public for 21 years. I I kind of like doing things where I did it with Keith Oberman and Dan Patrick who had not seen each other in years. I, I love kind of doing, getting people back together again. And so I think Michael may have been disappointed in some of what was in the book, but I was, again, really grateful that he decided to be there that evening because that was, for me, at least one of the one of the highlights of the of the powerhouse book tour. You know, the, the breadth of your career, obviously it, you're a prolific writer. You're, you do focus on, I don't know about focus. I don't, you tell me, but your books, uh, have focused on entertainment ESPN. CA, I don't know if entertainment's the right word. Correct me if I'm wrong. CAA ESPN SNL, maybe media is the right word. I don't know. Well, My first book was about the Senate. So I was, a. Uh, you know, I was kind or of. Or he just slapped me down from that one. <laughs> no, 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 no. I know. I mean, I mean, the answer to your question is not necessarily that. Right. Okay. I mean, I think that the last three books were. They're, you know, I would say that they're entities that affected the culture in a uh, culture 
in, you know, in a dominant way. And there's also another commonality, which is that SNL, ESPN, and CAA were three entities that were born in the 1970s from the most humble of beginnings and wound up being incredible, incredibly successful worldwide brands. You know, uh, so one of the things that I really like just about the initials. Now, there were people who didn't know what CA was, and I understand that. And the publisher told me that from the beginning. You know, it's going to be harder to make people understand what this book is in the outside of Hollywood or outside of New York, the mainstream, you know, access for this kind of stuff. But um, I still think that it's really interesting to think that all three of those places, I mean, expectations for all of them were so incredibly small when they started. I'll tell you one quick thing, if yeah, you don't please. mind. On the opening night of Saturday Night Live, about 15 minutes before 11.30, so 15 minutes before they went on the air, Chevy Chase was standing off stage and said to Herb Sargent, who was this really great, colorful guy who unfortunately has passed away, he said, what, what do you think I should do next? Because... He was already thinking, like, they're about to start the show, the very first episode. And, like, Chevy's got, you know, he he doesn't think this dog's going to hunt. Right. Like, he's already like, what do you think I should do next? And, and indeed, Chevy left after, you know, a season and a half. And um, to this day, I think is quite amazed that it's, you know, 44 and counting. But uh, I think ESPN, same thing, nobody would gave it a chance. And... Uh, and CA was five guys who had just been fired from the William Morris Agency um, sitting at card tables and having their wives answer the phone. So why is that? Why do you identify with the underdog? I think it's all about the narrative. It's about the journey. It's about, you know, one of my favorite games growing up was shoots and ladders. And you do this thing where, you know, all of a sudden you there's this great moment of jubilation and triumph and achievement. And then the next moment you you know, you step into a freaking pothole and all of a sudden, like, oh, gosh, what just happened? And how am I going to, you know, how are you going to pick yourself up? How are you going to overcome? And I think each one of them, if you were to graph their stories, they read like an EKG, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, cool just, there's just these these moments where you think, wow, how amazing is it that they were able to do this from you know, from such humble beginnings. And then all of a sudden, the next, you know, sometimes the next day, sometimes the next week, all of a sudden, you know, the ceiling comes crashing down. And I think that, you know, those kinds of things that are, I, I think they're inherently dramatic, but from a business point of view, but also from a human point of view. Like, who are the people then that just fucking give up? Right. Who are the people that throw in the towel? Who are the people that are psychologically capable of saying, you know, we're in the desert now, but... Right. I, I, I'm betting that there's going to be water out there. You know, hang on, hang on. Or the people who say, all right, thank you very much, everybody. I'm out of here. Right. I'm leaving. And in all three cases, there are examples of both. What did your parents do, Jim? My mom, my mom, well, the most important thing my mom did was she had my sister and I, this is before my other sister was born, we were we did this thing called quiet time where we were not allowed to um, watch TV. We weren't allowed to go outside. It was like an hour, hour and a half or whatever. And it was the only thing that we were like 
because she was pretty liberal. We had no curfews, could say anything we wanted, do anything. Hmm. It was the only thing we had. And we just had to like sit there with her and quiet time. My sister wound up drawing and sketching and became an artist. And I wound up reading and writing. So I started, uh, my mom taught me how to keep a journal when I was like six. So um, she, you know, she was, a, she worked in uh, political campaigns and my dad had his own very modest uh, insurance. He was a kind of insurance guy that, um, you know, we did, we did not have, we did not have money um, to say the least, but mm. we were happy. So good news is I never equated money with happiness. Yeah. In your career, looking back on it, what's, what's, is there a, is there a moment that in terms of journalism and, and, and capturing a moment, is there a, anything that you look back on and, and regret? You wish you just asked that other question or reacted just a slightly different way? Um, I mean, I feel like that about every day. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I, I always count the ones that, uh, I'm not much on, uh, on victory laps. I'd Why rather, is that? Why is that? Because a sad Jew is a happy Jew. I yeah, mean, but- you know, it's like, I mean, you, you, you kind of, I mean, what's the point of like, you know, taking a bow or just patting yourself on the shoulder about, Something I just have never done that. I, you know, I, I always feel like uh, if I were to pick up any page of any story that I wrote for the Washington Post, the New York Times, Vanity Fair, Hollywood Reporter, anything, or any of these books, and turn to a page, I, there would be something that I'd want to tweak. Right. Um, That's awesome. Which is why when I write screenplays, it's like a ground war in Southeast Asia because I'm never, <laughs> I, I just can never hit send. I, I can't. I, I just can't get out of it. I just, I, I just, you know, I'm, you know, kind of just trying to <laughs> keep on tweaking, keep on tweaking. All right. So the following is a pretty big deal, so much so that my producer, Chris, was like, holy cow, I'm definitely going to do this. And he doesn't always say that. As you know, Mother's Day is coming up. And let's be honest, what wouldn't you do to make sure? The special moms, whether it's your mom, your grandmother, your aunt, make sure they're they're happy. Make sure you do something that they actually remember. Uh, my own mom, I mean, I don't want to start crying here. Uh, I think I've shown enough of my emotions on this podcast, but is my best friend. And so I'm going to do something. I'm going to write a nice card, one. Two, I'm going to do something simple. It doesn't take very long, but she will love it. She doesn't need to know. It won't take very long unless she listens to this episode. That is Sherry's Berries, which I love. I I got to eat some on my own uh, time, and quite good. They have a special Mother's Day berries designed just for mom that are topped with chocolate chips, my favorite, pink shimmer sugar, and swizzles. You choose your delivery date to ensure your mom gets your gift of Sherry's Berries exactly when you want her to, and your satisfaction is always guaranteed. Don't wait until the last minute on this one, obviously. Visit berries.com today to order freshly dipped strawberries. Ugh, sounds good just saying it. Starting at $19.99 for the moms in your life. To make mom really happy, you can double the berries for just $10 more. Mother's Day is Sunday, May 12th, so visit berries.com. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone in the upper right corner 
and enter my code WRH. That's berries.com. Click the microphone, code WRH. What's the funniest, one of the funniest experiences you've had in all these different worlds you've and different people you've encountered? One of, like one of those stories that you'll just never forget that was that was funny. I mean, I I love when and it happens, you know, quite it doesn't happen quite frequently, but it, I always love it when it does happen, when something happens that reflects the true person, like the, like reveals, it's almost like an x-ray. Mm. You know, I had, uh, when I was doing the second volume of the SNL book, or maybe it was, I'm lucky enough to have interviewed him several times and I just love each time, but or maybe it was the CA book, but I was trying desperately to, to finally talk to Bill Murray and that's that's that makes waiting for Godot look like I mean it's just it's a joke because I mean I could get to the Pope faster and he uh, once called me on my cell phone and said uh, I'll meet you at the um, at the 18th hole of this um, golf course that was in Pebble Beach What's Pebble Beach? Yeah, 18, 18th hole of Pebble Beach, sure, sure. which is in California. And I, of course, at the time, uh, was in Washington. So it was very convenient. <laughs> and like he didn't mean like in like an hour. He meant like in like he was probably finishing a round of golf. I think he was finishing a round of golf and he said, okay, I'll talk to you afterwards. I'll meet you at the 18th hole. You know, and it's like, uh, I mean, and by the way, he was completely <laughs> earnest. He wasn't trying to mind fuck me. Like, right. you know, it's like, okay, yeah, I got time for you now. Just Come over. He he didn't necessarily process that I might not be hanging out at Pebble Beach, waiting for him to possibly be paying golf there right. and stop and stopping by. <laughs> um, you know, I I think I mean I mentioned at the beginning of the Curb and Your Enthusiasm chapter. I once had breakfast in Martha's Vineyard with Larry David, and it was um, it was almost like that scene in Casino, but we had. I remember he had a chocolate chip muffin and oh, he uh, he asked to see the baker of the place because he wound up smushing it all over his plate and counting the chips that were in it and <laughs> and was complaining about the fact that there had been um, more chips in yesterday's muffin. <laughs> and it's just like, I just felt like so lucky to just sit there and watch this because... And this is who he is. I mean, that's part of the genius of Curb, of course. That, you know, he's not Lawrence Olivier. This is not, by the way, the, the freaking thing isn't even written. So it's like he's not, it's not like he's following somebody's script or he's even his own script. It's not like he's a great actor. So much of what goes on on that screen is endemic to his, you know, own quixotic view of the world and his, I would say, courage about not wanting to be yeah. like, you know, the most popular person on the show. Right. In fact, he's, I think he takes great pride in uh, being the least popular person. Right. So um, I think moments like that, I, I also, I guess there are moments when, you know, you're talking to somebody and you've asked the question and you're not trying to do that, but it elicits such a powerful emotional reaction from them that you get caught up by those moments. Mm -hmm. Those things, particularly when, when somebody like cries, I mean, that's like a big thing for me because I instantly feel 
okay, I feel guilty that they're crying. I want to make sure I wasn't, they knew I wasn't trying to manipulate them into crying. But at the same time, I realized we've reached the point where we're getting to another level of truth. This happened with Nick Saban's wife when I interviewed her, which, you know, people had said to me, oh, she's not going to talk to you and don't expect her to talk to you. And if she does talk to you, she'll be monosyllabic. And I wound up having like a, a terrific conversation with her. Terry Saban is, uh, look, I mean, this is often the case. And one of the reasons why Warren Buffett says one of the most important professional decisions people make is who they marry. Because uh, I never asked Nick Saban this, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if he had married a different woman, uh, I, don't, I don't know if he's literally as successful as he is now, but you could tell in the course of my interview with her and my research with her and stuff that she's had just an enormous impact on his career. And, uh, and so to have her talk at that, at that level, you know, is really like a very profound, raw level, I thought was pretty amazing. Yeah, I can't imagine. What happened with the Bill Murray story in the end? Well, you know, you what happens, at least with me, is you go, you know, days and weeks and sometimes months. I, I mean, I think Sofia Coppola went through the same thing with Lost in Translation because she didn't know for sure whether Bill was doing the movie up in until like relatively, <laughs> relatively close to pre-production. <laughs> I mean, I think he had said yes, but not a firm yes, and right. schedule and everything else. But what happens with him is you wind up having to climb Everest on a cold day in your shorts, and it's a pain in the ass, and oh my God, you don't think it's going to come. And then all of a sudden, the moment that you're talking to him and the moment that he opens up his mouth, you forget all about that because everything is wonderful. Mm. And I'm just going to add to your answer because... Your previous question, and a different kind of answer, which is that the moment that Bill Murray described to me the going away, not the going away party, but a party that they had for Gilda when everybody knew that she was kind of sick, and the way he described it, and he did choke up, and that's a moment where I wish it had been a podcast, because to hear the frailty in Bill Murray's voice is is a very unusual special thing hmm. and it it just gave me goosebumps and i just it it was just so special and so profound and of course his love for her and their relationship both on screen and off screen was so special and so unique um i think that one was that one was right up there so how do you balance and i'm serious, like internally or in your mind or in your heart how do you balance you're clearly grateful for a lot of these experiences, or it seems, I mean, yes, it seems that way, but then you're also hypercritical of your of your work. How do you balance those two? Are you able to en enjoy life or do you spend your time walking around feeling like you could have done, you could have done better? Uh, pharmacology. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's all about the right drugs at the right time. So what are you, what are you on? I don't actually, I'm not on anything, which is, yeah. you know, might explain something else. Um, <laughs> I think I've never really thought about it, but I think that the formula, if you were to deconstruct it is that I feel enormously grateful for, you know, all that happens. And then, uh, I have the freedom to be 
critical of myself afterwards, not necessarily others, um, just myself. But I think that I use that as a way of getting better the next time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, just think, you know, what can, uh, what can I learn from this? Where did I maybe, you know, if, if I feel like, you know, maybe it was an interview or maybe it was uh, something that I did that, you know, while I'm doing it, I'm enjoying it and I feel like this is so great. And then afterwards I look at it and I think, you know, kind of running on four cylinders there, could have been better. Then I don't just do it just to beat the crap out of myself. I just think, okay, so like what's missing? Like I do a lot of post-game. Um, I think post-game is, is kind of fun. Um, I admire my friends in the business who once they write something or they finish something, they just click it off mm-hmm. and they hit the delete key and they don't look back and they don't think about it. And, you know, would have, should have, could have. And I try and do that um, in my personal life because that's not, you know, it's, but work-wise, I think there's always something, you know, there's always something you can learn. I mean, well, actually, I do it in my personal life too. So, you always, I don't know. I think it, it sounds corny, but I just feel like if you really kind of put yourself under a microscope or put your work under a microscope with yourself, then there's bound to be some takeaways that can help in the future. Just to take a, a quick detour here, uh, Jim, journalism today, I think I hear a lot of people say things like, and they're talking about the news. Uh, they'll say, oh, they got their, their sources are off the record. Um, you know, there shouldn't be off the record. And this is in casual conversations and it's people who aren't in journalism, but that's so, you know, I don't, I'm not judging that at all, of course. Can you explain, I think a lot of people in journalism think that everyone just knows this, but the differences between on the record, off the record, being on background, there's different ways of, in which people can communicate to journalists. And could you, I feel like you're good at breaking things down or providing the anatomy of something and how that, how that works. Well, I, I kind of loathe off the record. When somebody is talking to me and they say, listen, off the record, I get a little car sick mm-hmm. because what that means is that I can't use that in any way, shape or form, which presents two problems. One is if I were to find that information out from somebody else, right? Let's just say off the record, I saw Jenks at Shake Shack Monday night. Mm-hmm. Right, you, you or you tell me you were at Shake Shack Monday night, and then I run into somebody else, and they say, "By the way, I saw Jenks at Shake Shack Monday night." If I were to report that Jenks was at Shake Shack, then that then you say to me, "Wait a second, dude, mm. I I told you that off the record." So I don't like off the record to begin with because that presents a serious problem. The second is if something's off the record, you have to really think about what its value is to you then. Because if it's off the record, that means it's really off the record. That means that you can't use it. Like, I can't, you say to me, I was at Shake Sack, and I can't say to anybody, well, there was a guy, a rather tall, handsome, you know, kind mm. of, you know, man about town. Mm. Uh, but I can't use it. And so I, I don't like it. Um, I, it's, I know people say it, it becomes like a phrase, right? Yeah. And so 
I think that's that's fraught with with problems. Background is something else because background. There are many times that people want to convey either context, perspective, or sometimes even facts on background, but they don't want it to be attributed to them. And is that what is that when it, it, you know? Such and such, such and such happened. Sources say, yeah. is that background? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And uh, I mean, there's all sorts of look. We're kind of skimming the surface of this. There's lots of different nuances that could take up an entire journalism class. But I'm just saying, broadly speaking, under these rubrics of you know, on the record, background, and off the record, those would be the three, right? Yeah. Broadly speaking. Broadly speaking. I mean, there's all sorts of other nuances, but I think the the biggest one is that when people say off the record, sometimes, and even sometimes reporters think that they can use that if they don't use that person's name. Right, yeah. And I've just, I've never done that. That's, it's a no-no. So what's next for Jim Miller? I am, uh, I mean, obviously I, 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 I love Origins and uh, we're going to be continuing work on that. I'm working on, two documentaries which I'm really excited about and can you tell us what those uh, are in a word no but soon <laughs> um, <laughs> and, is there anything you're working on that you can tell us what the topic is I am uh, other than teasing us about different mediums I'm you're writing in. a one hour drama oh for a network and what can I say about it? It's a family drama. <laughs> Jesus. So that's about it. Yeah, I know. It's so you got a TV show, a podcast, two documentaries, but you can't tell us what any of it's about. Oh. What's the most important step moving forward as it pertains to good journalism getting being done? Uh, for you mean for the country as a whole? Yeah. I think, yeah. I think it's it's. I think that the worst thing that happens, particularly in this day and age, is when when mistakes are made. Now that sounds really simplistic, but the truth is that because of the heightened divisiveness in the country and because we have, and this has nothing to do with your supporter of President Trump's or, or not, but it's clear that he has taken aim at you know many facets of journalism and the media. And so, when there is a mistake, it just gives fodder to those people that believe that, you know, certain entities and outlets can't be trusted. When there's a mistake by a journalist. Right. So I think that there's, look, no journalist goes to work wanting to make a mistake. Right. And I think that over the last quarter of a century, I think journalism itself has been pretty good about admitting like there's a correction page and there's right. oftentimes public editors or ombudsman, whatever. I think that there's been great mechanisms for established journalistic entities to, um, you know, take, take the blame. But nevertheless, I think each one of those in this kind of world now become increasingly costly because there's a whole other narrative attached to it then, which is that it really wasn't a mistake. This is part of a overall agenda. Facts don't really, you know, facts are being manipulated or, 
you know, even the word facts now is overdetermined mm. in our lexicon, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's alternative facts and yeah. there's this facts and this facts. And I think that there's also something else which I think is really important. Sometimes it's not about a mistake, but it's about the lack of context and the lack of comprehensive reporting. So, you know, I think that there were times when I remember during the Merrick Garland episode and when McConnell said that they weren't going to hold hearings. And a lot of people were up in arms and they had every right to be up in arms. But then there was some evidence that actually Joe Biden, when he was chairman of the Judiciary Committee, had not decided to take up or had said that he wasn't going to take up a certain nomination because it was late in a president's term of office. But there were certain outlets that chose not to even mention that. So the McConnell thing became such an outlier. And I think that, you know, when you're telling stories like that, you have to be better than that, even if it doesn't necessarily have as much firepower as it would if it was the first and only in the incidence of it. You got to be like honest on both sides. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, something that, um, so omission can also be right. a casualty in today's life. Right. Last question. Is there is there an experience you've had, an anecdote that you've had in your in your career in journalism that you that you almost try and live by that you'll always remember something that it really taught you something in terms of how to be a professional? Well, I mean, I think, as I was saying earlier, you you know, you try and learn that every day, but I think that there was, there was one particular exercise, which I thought was really important. I worked for a a senator and uh, the congressional record is something that, you know, gets used to get printed in these big books. I don't know if it still does, but senators had the right to, quote, um, revise and extend their remarks. So if you went on the Senate floor and you talked about it, you gave a speech, right? Before it appeared in the official Senate record, the senator or one of their staffs could go and do whatever. So you could say one thing in the Senate and then the next day before it's published, say the exact opposite. No, 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 no. When it, when it, the Senate record was published, like you could say, today is the first day of spring. Mm-hmm. And then a staffer or a senator could go back and say, today is the first day of winter. Like it could become as Orwellian as you oh, wow. wanted it to. Okay. Okay. And I did that every single day. And I was lucky enough to work for the Senate Majority Leader, the great Howard Baker, who had a keen moral compass. And as a result, there was never a day, I mean, he didn't check what I did. In fact, no one did. So I could have, I could have done what I wanted to, right? But I think that when you have that kind of opportunity, it sets up, like there are no guardrails. There's not even a line down the road. Like, get in there, man, have some fun. Like, I mean, now, and by the way, P.S., this was in the day, not, I'm only 28, so. Yeah, of course. But this was in the day before the Senate was televised. So if you really, I mean, it wasn't like people were out watching C-SPAN and saying, 
wait a second, he didn't say that yesterday, or they're recording it, or they got a VCR wow. or anything like it's that. Wild West. So imagine the uh, the ability to um, you know change things around. I think that exercise for me, and I'm not patting myself on the shoulder at all, but I think it was just a really instructive vehicle for for realizing that you know you can't you can't mess around with stuff like that. I mean, obviously, you know, take out some ums and I knows and, you know, whatever, and maybe clarify something in a, using a certain word or something maybe. But the point is you don't want to recreate history. You mm-hmm. don't want to lie. You don't want to distort. You don't want to do anything that conflicts with, you know, just honesty. Thank you for coming in, Jim. What a boring way to end. <laughs> that was great. And then, the got, and then he got ponderous and decided to lecture <laughs> us on the importance of... Anyway, thanks for having me. What Really Happened is produced by Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Andrew Jenks. Andrew Jenks.